Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's April 19th, 2018, and we're going to take a break from porn stars, strippers, uh, mob lawyers, and Washington politics. Joining me is Andy Ferguson, who has an absolutely marvelous piece up on the Weekly Standard, remembering Barbara Bush and, and her, what a subversive figure she was. First of all, Andy, I got to tell you, what a fantastic piece this is. And how it I go really from porn stars to Barbara Bush. That's quite a swing. Well, you know what? We've done the porn stars. We'll do porn stars in the past. But there, there's, there's something about this. It, it, it is how countercultural she is. But, you know, this is a fantastic piece because you really do dial in on an aspect of her character and her philosophy that, that I think is easy to sort of brush back as kind of a cliche. So let's let's start from the beginning, Andy. First of all, you you're talking about her uh, speech at the at uh, at Wellesley's commencement. For how did she end up giving that commencement speech? Well, it's actually kind of an interesting story. The um, this is a class of 1990, and like a lot of places, the seniors get to vote on who they want to be their commencement speaker. And at Wellesley, which even then was a pretty left-wing place, now it's it's sort of off the charts. But um, the seniors voted for to ask Alice Walker, the novelist who wrote mm -hmm. *The Color Purple*, and uh, she said she didn't want to do it. And it turned out that the runner-up was Mrs. Bush, and so they in, uh, invited her, and she said yes. And, and she got more votes than Whoopi Goldberg, Glenn Close, and Connie Chung. Yes, exactly. She she had a divided opposition. Um, so anyway, so it immediately became controversial, and about a third of the class sent a note to, or a public letter to the president of the college um, saying that it was kind of offensive that Mrs. Bush would be invited because she had not achieved anything on her own, but everything that she, all of her prominence was derived from her husband's success. Which contravenes what we have been taught over the last four years at Wellesley. Yeah, that's that's a direct mm -hmm. quote. I, yeah. I, I had to go to look up contravenes to remind me what it, if they'd used it correctly, and they did kind of. But you can't really contravene in education. You can yeah. contravene like brainwashing. You can contravene propaganda. So the, I think their view of education was kind of like indoctrination rather than education, which requires skepticism and engagement and all that sort of thing. So um, anyway, Mrs. Bush has always was very uh, gracious about the controversy, and uh, the invitation was not rescinded. And um, she so she showed up and um, to to give her commencement address. Now the, the the famous line that's being played over and over again on television is where she talks about you know s someday I hope that you know one of you um, you know ha ha plays the same role that I play and what, what was it she plays a gender game right where, where it was very clear she was referring to the first woman president but that's not what you focus on in this piece you talk about what um, and, and you you say that that a lot of people fail to see how pointed her remarks are and she actually talked about the three big choices that these graduates, these incredibly bright, talented, privileged graduates would face in their life. What were the choices? Well, she said there were three of them. Uh, she said the first choice was to devote themselves to something larger than themselves, some kind of cause or great idea. Uh, the second one was that they should be joyful in their lives. They should live their lives with um, appreciating the beautiful things in life. Well, you know, 
Everybody would have said that. Alice Walker would have said that. Connie Chung would have said that. Uh, but it was the third choice that she referred to where I think that she really kind of um, kind of pulled out a dagger uh, in a way, but very, very subtly and very uh, beautifully. She said the third choice, this is a quote from her, the third choice that must not be missed is to cherish your human connections. And I actually think that that's kind of a subversive idea. Uh, it was subversive on college campuses then, and I think it would certainly be so now. Well, go, go back to the, the full quote, because, because it, it, really, it gets more subversive as it goes on. Right. You, to cherish your human connections, your relationship with family and friends. Yeah. And, and, and then she goes on to, to talk about what they've been doing at Wellesley. Yeah, she says, for several years, you've had impressed upon you the importance to your career of dedication and hard work. And of course, that's true. But as important as your obligations as a doctor, lawyer, or business leader will be, you are a human being first, and those human connections with spouses, children, and friends are the most important investments you will ever make. Now, at the time, you know, feminism was really taking off. Uh, I mean, it had been in train for what we call second-wave feminism, anyway. It had been going on for 20, 25 years, but it had really become the dominant uh, mode of thinking, especially in, in women's colleges. And... It was all. It was a particular kind of feminism, which was, you know, we're going to beat men at their own game. That is, we're going to become the hedge fund managers. We're going to become the the bankers. We're going to become um, the you know the kick-ass lawyers and all that sort of stuff. Um, and rather than sort of taking feminism as something that could actually refine. American life and its sort of coarseness and its materialism. Uh, they wanted to just sort of succeed at that. Mrs. Bush was saying, you know, um, okay, if you want to do that, but what is really going to matter in your life when you look back on it are these human connections, the, the, the time that you've devoted to your children or your husband or your best friend. She says uh, it, I, I, Yeah, go ahead, so go ahead. Well, she, she says it beautifully. Uh, at the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal. See, that's directly aimed at careerists in the audience. But you will regret time not spent with a husband, a child, a friend, or a parent. Now, we may think, oh, well, that's this kind of banal, anodyne, hallmark greeting card kind of thing. But actually, if you take it seriously, it's it's really quite countercultural to uh, what we were taught then and, and what we're still being taught. You refer to the faith of careerism, the faith of careerism, and, and, and really how the, the, the whole fight over whether we were materialists or not was, was, was over by 1990. And part of that was the Reagan era where everybody decided that, that, that their worth and meaning in life was going to be decided by the job they do. And if anything, that has simply accelerated since then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in the in the 60s sort of rebelliousness, which I know, you know, a lot of people just reject out of hand, there was actually something um, quite, um, I would say, quite wise in it, uh, in a kind of a tradition in America that dates back to Henry David Thoreau and Emerson and so on, which is that, um, that the market and, and um, riches and the wealth that it creates are sort of... Um, are never means, are just means to an end. They are never an end in themselves. And I think that 
beginning in the 80s with the incredible amount of wealth that was thrown off by the economy, people did start to define themselves more by their careers than they did by their success in as a husband or as a wife or as you a father. You refer to that as the, the valorization of the all-conquering market, the glorification of material advancement. And, and in that sentence, you, you attribute that to Reaganism. Was that Reaganism or was that just a larger cultural impulse, uh, non-ideological I, th I think it, it certainly coincided with Reagan. Yeah. Um, and uh, and because <laughs> Reagan was so successful, remember what Reagan wanted to do was precisely what happened, which was to um, inspire the creation of more wealth. We had been flat on our backs for quite a while, and he came along and he said, no, here's how we do it, and, and work is good, and um, capitalism is good, and um, these things are all beneficial to mankind. But I think what got lost in there is that they're only beneficial when they're a means to a larger end. And as I say, I think the, the whole Reagan philosophy got caught up with this idea that, that riches and, and, and the generation of wealth was an end in itself. And you point out that the debate is really over because the materialists won. We're all careerists now, men and women together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that that's true. Even and, and partly it is a triumph of feminism as feminism – um, entered the the bloodstream of the society in the in the 80s and 90s, which is this kind of materialistic feminism. Um, and we, the perfect example of this is uh, a book called Lean In mm -hmm. by Sheryl Sandberg, one of the best-selling Facebook. books of the last 10 years, um, which is exactly this kind of feminism that the goal in life for the for the successful woman is to march right through the corporation, get into the CEO's corner office or as close as you can get to it, uh, have nice houses, take nice vacations, uh, make a lot of dough, have a lot of employees you can boss around, and all that kind of stuff that was sort of the, the, the desire of the capitalist man in 1950s and 1960s and so on. They just sort of subsumed that into feminism. Well, I think we're seeing right now that there's a lot that's left out of that vision of life, and um, some of the some of the consequences haven't been that great. Yeah, you know, it, you're you're right, you're right to link this to feminism, but also, I mean, when I, when I reread those words, they they hit me, you know, sort of regardless of of the issue of of you know you know male and female, and you may make the point that this uh, this clearly transcends all of that, and I wonder, uh, Andy, whether or not. Um, this is the fact. With, with, with this, let me put it this way. Um, I, I think her words really seem much more impactful at the age that I am now. Now, I'm sure that if I read them back in 1990, uh, I would have nodded and I might have written an op-ed piece about it. But the older you get, the more you begin to think through this issue of priorities, what really matters, what it, what is the goal of life, what is the purpose of life. You know, are our lives going to be uh, measured in spoonfuls of regret, the things that we, we regret. So do you, do you think that it is a function of the fact that you and I are a little bit older now? <laughs> Did you, I mean, would, would, would this have had the, the, the kind of resonance with you in 1990? Well, I guess it is okay to admit that I'm definitely playing the back nine in uh, the, the golf game yeah. of life. Um, well, I, th I think – I remember reading the speech at the time and uh, in fact, I went on to work for uh, Mrs. Bush's husband for a time, um, and I, I just admired, admired it as a 
piece of rhetoric as a kind of jujitsu sort of move. Mm-hmm. Um, so I admired it on that level. But I think you're right. When you get older, I mean, she says it just perfectly in this thing. At the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test or closed one more deal. You will regret time not spent with a husband, mm-hmm. a child, a friend, or a parent. Um, it sounds so banal. It sounds like so obvious. But people don't take that seriously and literally, and they should. No, that's one of the things of, uh, of, of time where the cliche becomes real for you. You know, all the people that said, hey, you know, uh, enjoy your kids now because they'll be grown at a certain point. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And, then, and then there comes that day where it's the last soccer match. It's the last basketball game. And you're thinking, boy, I, 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 had, I had no idea. You know, I also – it had an echo of, uh, of Viktor Frankl's book, uh, The Meaning of Life, which, which actually was influential to me when I was younger where he, of course, says, imagine yourself in your 80s or your 90s and you're lying on your deathbed and you're looking back on your life and trying to figure out what the meaning of your life was and look back at the, at the moment you are now and the decisions that you're faced with and, and whether they and, or how they contributed to that meaning of life. I always thought that that was an incredibly valuable perspective and she had the same perspective. You know, at the end of your life, what are you going to regret? What will be valuable? And this is the kind of thing that, quite frankly, you know, not only to beat on her, but you know, the, the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world, um, I don't think have grasped. And it's it's not just the victory of the materialists. It's it's sort of the the absence of any sort of philosophical framing of our lives anymore. Yeah, that's that's a, another subversive part of of the speech. It's a very odd thing. She walked into this hyper-politicized atmosphere. You know, she, she, for the first time in her life, she'd become the object of controversy. And she was the object of controversy precisely because of the way she had led her life, that she'd been a devoted mother and a devoted husband. And I think she saw that this whole sort of style of life, her whole um, way of living was being... Um, gainsaid or being, you know, downplayed and or even denigrated. And she wanted to which it was establish a framework in which you see the logic of why she lived the life that she did, why she wanted to be a mother and and a a devoted wife who helped her husband climb the greasy pole of success. Um, and that's what she did in the speech. And it is it is a framework. It's a it's a different way of looking at the world, you have to reorient yourself away from, you know, buy, 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 spend, 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 and start to think about something that's, that's more important. Well, put, me, put, put her in the context of the Bush family and the Bush dynasty. As I was, uh, as I was coming over here to, to talk with you about this, I was, I was thinking about the, the tradition that she represents, and the shorthand would be you know, a, a, a tradition of, of decency, of, of civility that really came through her, her entire life. But we're living through a period right now where there are a lot of people who seem to think that decency and you know, civility are um, they're superfluous. They're signs of weakness, um, values that, that, are, that are no longer really celebrated. And in a lot of ways, when you think about the 2016 campaign, the way that the the Jeb Bush, you know, the 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 Jeb Bush came to be seen as as kind of a, a dinosaur, weak and feckless, as opposed to the man on the white horse, the orange man on the, the white <laughs> the white horse. Um, that that we we really have are in a in a culture right now that does devalue the kinds of things that that she represented, which is sort of odd. I'm guessing I'm, I'm trying to get my hands around the paradox because 
right now the country is looking at her and, and her and her legacy and admiring it. There, with the exception of Roger Stone, who's apparently ranting and raving um, on Infowars about her, I would say the vast majority of Americans recognize the values and the humanity of this woman, and yet we really don't value those those traits anymore. Well, as, as much as we used to. Let me put it that way. Yeah, and it, it is it, it's sort of disturbing. I, I don't know what she would have made of all, all the things that happened in the last several years and, and the way politics has kind of gone downhill. And um, you're, you're, you're right to cite Chubb because um, he was a guy who was thought of as being weak because he was courteous, because mm-hmm. he was soft-spoken, because he wanted to think things through. And this is somehow a sign of a, a loser. And uh, I, I can't imagine what Mrs. Bush thought about the the, the kind of uh, upside down thinking that was uh, that's taken place over the last couple of years. I suspect we will find out because she was not a woman to keep her opinions to herself, and of course <laughs> she was she was out there. She was campaigning for Jeb. I saw a picture of her campaigning for yeah. Jeb in in New Hampshire. So I'm sure I, I I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, she had some very very strong views and that they were strongly stated, and that sooner or later we're going to hear. What she thought of that, because of course, but what a, what an extraordinary um, you know life that she led. Only Abigail Adams comes really close in terms of of first ladies. But to watch all the triumph and the disappointments of her children, and then the humiliation of of one of her sons, who arguably was the more talented son, um, must have been an extraordinary yeah. experience for her. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's something that very, very, very few people have had, as you say, Abigail Adams, and that's about it. Andy Ferguson's piece is up at the Weekly Standard, and it is uh, it is definitely worth your time. Andy, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very, very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this again. <laughs>